Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And this is the word of the Lord for which we say, thanks be to God. Yeah, let's pray. God, we gather around you this morning, certainly physically, with our feet, we're here, we're present around you, but ultimately, God, the orientation of this gathering is meant to be something deeper, it's meant to be something internal, and so we also gather around you right now, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds, we seek to recenter around the center of everything, and that's you. And Jesus, as we come before you and worship you and think about you and now open your word for it to be taught, Lord, we, we still want you at the center. And what a joy that we can have you there. What a joy that you are the God who has fought for us who has given us, us who are weak and feeble and failing and frail on our own, you have given us victory in you. You are leading us, your word says, you always lead us in triumph. And so God, despite how triumphant or not we may feel today, we know you're the God of victory. And we invite you to take us further, lead us deeper, God, into the lives of freedom and hope, and vitality that you have for us. Thank you for the message of Christmas that reminds us that you've done it all and we can trust in you. So God, would you be here this morning and just want to invite you, especially Holy Spirit, to come and work and move, to be the the preacher, to be the one at work in this room. God, I've done my best to prepare some things to say, but now we ask that you would get me and everything else out of the way so that we can encounter you, hear from you. And so that, God, certainly we can hear what you have to say to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Well, we were joking about the decade-long journey in Ephesians because we have really been taking our sweet time going through this richly dense and helpful book of the New Testament, a, a book that was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote this with a pastor's heart to a young church like ours. In Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, Paul's writing to this young church, encouraging them to remain 
in Christ. And each week we're looking at a different aspect of life in Christ. And for the past seven weeks, it's the number of completion, but we're not stopping here just so you know. The past seven weeks, we have been exploring this topic of warfare in Christ. This idea of spiritual warfare and the armor of God. I was joking about it last week. You know, I I wouldn't probably naturally choose the topic of Satan and demons and the devil to be the theme of our Advent season (laughs) leading up to Christmas. But as we follow God's word, it leads us to think about things we wouldn't normally. It leads us to preach about things we wouldn't normally, things that are helpful for us. And probably none more helpful than the greater context of our lives that Paul's reminding us about here in Ephesians 6. He's reminding this church that with all that they're called to do, they need to remember that there's more at stake here. There's more involved than just their efforts. There is a broader context to the Christian life, and it's the context of spiritual warfare, a spiritual reality, a spiritual realm, within which we find ourselves in a spiritual battle. It's this idea of a real spiritual enemy. Paul names him there as the devil. Who's not God, but he is powerful. He's not wise like God, but he is cunning. And he has studied humanity for the past few thousands of years. And we have given him a fair share of source material, haven't we? We've given him a lot of intel as to what trips us up. His main goal is to keep us distant from God. And there are many ways that he knows that he can do that or try that. And so we're in a fight. That's the idea. Whether or not we're fighting isn't the ultimate question. It's the fact that we, do we realize we're in a fight? That's first. You're in a battle. And the good news of Ephesians 6 is not do your best to beat up the enemy. That's not the idea here. It's to, notice the language here, put on the whole armor of God. In other words, you might have a real serious intimidating enemy, but the better news is that you have a real serious powerful God who's with you, who's behind you, and has given you all that you need to be victorious. Because this enemy that's coming to defeat us, he is ultimately a defeated foe. He's defeated. The cross was that fatal blow. It was the D-Day. Now, he's still fighting to his death, his final death. But we know that we fight from the victory of the cross. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's giving a vision of what it means to be victorious in life. To stand, as he says there, against what comes against us. We're not doomed to defeat here. We're not doomed to just sin and fall away from God again and again and again until we die. There's hope here because of what God has done. Again here, through giving us, here's the metaphor, the armor of God. So that's what this passage deals with. You first heard about it in VBS, and here you are years later going into the depths of it. But the armor of God is a metaphor that Paul uses here for the ways that God has provided for our defense and victory in battle. That's what it is. It's a metaphor. So so Paul's talked about truth and righteousness and the gospel and all these things that, here's the emphasis, what God has done. It's not the armor of self, amen? It's not the armor of self-sufficiency. It's not the armor of independence. It's not the armor of me. It's not the armor of flesh. It's the armor of God. It's the only true way to be armed in the battle. It's through God's provision. So that's what the armor of God is. It's all the ways that God has provided for our defense. But the call here, remember, is not just to own the armor and hang it up in your closet, right, and shine your armor, but it's to put on the armor, right? It's to actually appropriate what God has provided. 
It's like saying, you know, you have a seatbelt in your car, but having a seatbelt is not going to protect you as much as putting on the seatbelt. That's the big idea. So in this passage, that's the call. Look at that last verse. Take up the whole armor of God, the entirety of God's provision for your protection. The enemy is always looking for even just that one foothold of, of that window that you're neglecting in your life. You might have all this covered, but if you're neglecting this part of your life, he'll, he'll find it in. So the call is to be completely protected by all the ways that God has completely provided for you to stand against. Take up the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So as we go through the armor of God, it's verses 14 through 15 that Paul first describes three items of a Roman soldier. It's an analogy. It's, it's an illustration. He describes three armors that were to, uh, three pieces of armor that were to have on. We're to have on the belt of truth. We're to have on, so three items to have, the breastplate of righteousness to guard our hearts. And then we're to have on the provided shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, in verse 16, Paul transitions, and he goes from describing three items to have on to three items, listen to this, to take up. Three items to have on, three items to take up. He says to have on the belt, so you got to have on. You ever just left the house, you forgot to have on your belt? There's something about that. I just feel like everyone's looking at me like they know I don't have a belt on. You know what I mean? It's not a good feeling. So have on your belt, and if you're going to battle, you got to have on. You don't take up your breastplate, you have it on. You have on your shoes. Don't ever go to school without your shoes on. You'll have to listen to the sermon a couple weeks ago to know that one. But also, it's not enough to just have some things on. There are some things that you and I must take up. You know, like today, you came to church and you had some things on. Thank God, right? But also, there are some things you had to take up. You took your keys with you. You had to take that up. You took your, your Stanley cup. That's a thing. You took your, whatever your EDC, your everyday carry is as a law-abiding Floridian. Praise God. Now, that's your items that you carry with you. So Paul is describing that in verse 16. Take the shield of faith with which you're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then verse 17 here today. And take, something to take, the helmet of salvation. So usually a soldier would come in and he would take off his helmet, take off his shield put it aside. And now he's called to pick it up. Now, I don't have any like deep revelation about the difference between having these armors on and taking them up. And so if God gives you that, let me know. We'd love to hear about that. And um, I'll just pretend like I came up with it and teach on it next week. Okay. But here, taking up the helmet of salvation. This is where we get today. If we are going to stand against whatever's coming against us spiritually, we have to, we have to take up the helmet of salvation. A Roman soldier's helmet was central and essential to his armor. A Roman soldier wasn't even fully a Roman soldier in a lot of ways without taking up his helmet. In that culture, a soldier's helmet was more than just a source of protection. It was also a source of identity. It marked who you were, not just as a Roman soldier, but your rank within the Roman uh, army. Your helmet was an identifier of who you were. You had to take up your helmet, but obviously and ultimately, your helmet served as a vital piece of protection for one of the most vital parts of your body, which is your head. Uh, here's a picture of a Roman soldier's helmet from the first century. It looks something like this backwards hat with these 
flaps that hang down to guard your cheeks. And it was a, often a bronze, a brass, or an iron pieces of equipment, but depending on the, the weight that was needed. And it, it served for a lot of vital purposes of protection for the soldier's head, obviously for his, his brain there and on his skull. Uh, interestingly, that those side pieces, like think of like a, a, a batter in baseball, they'll sometimes have that side piece to protect them from uh, getting hit in the face. And then the back of the helmet would kind of curve up like an L to prevent uh, an attack on the neck from any blows from the top of the head, a sword coming down or something. So that, that's the the helmet that Paul has in mind when he says to take up the helmet, it's going to be a source of protection for you in spiritual battle. Now, I have a, uh, I have a weird, complicated, this is very unique maybe to me and a couple people in this room, but I have a unique relationship with helmets. Like, growing up, I grew up as a skateboarder. And in the 90s, nobody wore helmets, by the way. Okay, like nobody wore a helmet. It's probably why we're all so messed up these days. But um, in growing up as a skateboarder, it was like taboo. It wasn't cool to protect your brain. So if you showed up to skate, even at the skate park, like if they made you wear helmets when they weren't looking, you would take it off and be like, I don't need a helmet, you know? It's funny because I have multiple concussions on my record and scars all over my head from not wearing them. But it was kind of like the not cool thing to do. There's a skateboarder today named Andy Anderson. And this guy, he's as good as any other pro, and he's, like, repopularizing helmets. He's like, I'm here to make helmets cool, all right? Like, I, I don't think brain injuries are cool is kind of his thing, so I'm wearing a helmet. And he has, like, a little bill on it. It's pretty cool. All right, now, I, I'm 35, and I'm a dad. And so not only do I, if I'm ever going to be doing high-impact act, activity outside, I wear a helmet, okay? But I also... Like, we're strict about the helmet game at my house. Like, I've come full circle. I'm like, hel pro helmet. I've gone from anti-helmet, I want to be in the cool club. I'll do this trick without a helmet, and I'll go to the hospital. Uh, to now, like, I am, we are so pro helmet. You can't, my kids, like, you're not allowed to play. Put your shoes on and put your helmet on. It's like, Dad, we're going for a walk. Put a helmet on, okay? <laughs> Stuff falls out of the sky all the time, okay? Coconuts are one of the leading killers of people that, walk under coconuts. So, pro helmet. Um, obviously, we know why this is such a vital piece of the equipment. It prevents, as we're joking here, a, a head injury. Um, but ultimately, as Paul is saying here in Ephesians, to take up the helmet of salvation, remember, this is symbolic. So what is Paul communicating? Paul is communicating metaphorically the idea of God providing, listen, for protection, the protection of our minds. Just like a helmet protects your physical head, the idea here is spiritually speaking, he's like, you, just like you have to have the breastplate on to protect your heart, you've got to have the spiritual helmet on to protect your mind. Let me ask you this morning, is your mind guarded? Is your mind, do you have the whole armor of God on? Do you have your mind protected by the helmet of salvation? Um, let me say that we desperately need God to help protect our minds. We need his help to protect our minds. And not even just because the psychology behind your thought life. That's one reason. But also in the realm of what's spiritual, what we're talking about here, you could say that in a lot of ways, your mind, what you think about, what you pay attention to, 
the narrative stories that you live in about yourself, about God, about the world, is often the main arena of your spiritual battles. The main event, the main card of your spiritual fight is your thought life. It's your mind. This is one of the main places that Satan has some unique power and ability to influence and attack and affect us. It's in our mind. Have you felt this before? Now, we see this in Scripture. uh, There's many occasions in the Bible where you see the mind being the main arena for spiritual war. One of my favorites is because I find some humor in it because I relate with Peter a whole lot in the Bible is in Matthew 16, when Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, he's like, this is, by the way, the most important question that you or I could ever answer. He says, um, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So Jesus, at this point, he's, you could say, trending in Israel. Okay? He's, 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 a, he's a most used hashtag in Israel. And there's a lot of different opinions about Jesus. And, and just like today, everyone's got their opinion of Jesus. Every, every tribe, nation, tongue, and religion has a view of Jesus. And usually it's a little bit like this. It's, it's a piece of Jesus that becomes the whole rather than just a part of his greater identity. So a lot of these opinions culturally about Jesus being John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, it spoke to an aspect of Jesus' life and not the whole. Does that make sense? And we don't ever want to settle for an aspect of Jesus. We want to allow him be who he is, the great I am, who tells us who he is. And by the way, this isn't something that's like tough. It shouldn't be like a bummer. Who God is is exactly who we need him to be. So trust me, you want God to be who he is, not who you want him to be. And so this is why we should see all of Jesus and who he is. And so he's asking the disciples, "What what are people saying about me? What's the talk of the town? They're like, well, here's some of the parts they have of you. And then here's the most important question you or I will answer. And he said to them, but who do you God will ask you this, who do you say that Jesus is? It's great that there's all these opinions. You you got your finger on the pulse of pop culture, and it's great, but what about you? What's your conviction about Jesus? And we love Peter, don't we? Peter's the first to speak up for better or for worse. His strength was his weakness. His blessing was his curse. Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, bullseye. Ding, ding, ding. The price is right, Peter. Jesus answered and said to him, bless it. Now, imagine you're Peter right now. And by the way, Peter just let, he's one of those homies that just lets it fly. You know what I'm saying? I think Peter's mondo is send it, don't think it. Just go, okay? And Peter just goes, well, this is who you are. And I wonder if, if he's... Awaiting Jesus' next words, maybe he's surprised. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to your mind. You didn't come up with this on your own, but my Father who's in heaven. So, whoa, Peter in his mind gets intel from heaven. And he gets the question right. Peter gets cocky. Goes, it goes to his head in all the wrong ways. From that time, a couple of verses later, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter just hit the bullseye. Now he's hearing Jesus say that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And here's the best part, and be raised the third day, just as it says in the scriptures, all that the Messiah would do. Then Peter took Peter, bolstered with this self-confidence that I, I get it right, and pride becomes his 
fall. He says, it says, Peter took him aside. What are you doing taking the Son of God aside to have a chat with him? Don't do that. Jesus takes us aside, by the way. We don't, Jesus, come on, I got to talk to you about this, okay? I'm a little nervous about your public reputation. It says, he took him aside, and then to make matters a little bit more spicy, he began to rebuke him. Shouldn't do that. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, it shall not happen to you. I'm Peter. I hit bullseyes, right? And Jesus turned and said to Peter, I mean, talk about a high, high, and a low, low. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's like, come again, right? Who are you talking to? Is the devil here? Jesus says, you're an offense to me. Notice this, for you are not, what? Mindful of the things of God and the things of men. You ever felt like in the same moment, you could have thoughts that come into your mind right from the throne of heaven, and then a couple breaths later, you have some of the most corrupt, vile, evil, demonic things? You ever felt like Peter? Like, it's like, how do we, what a tension. It's as if there's more going on in the arena of our minds. And there is. There's a spiritual battle. There's a fight. The things of God at war with the things opposed to God. And our mind serves as that primary arena. Satan begins to influence Peter's mind and what he was thinking, what he's thinking about. Now, now this is... What Paul is emphasizing then when he says, take the helmet of salvation. In light of the weight over what we think, in light over how much of our spiritual fights begin in the mind, we must have our minds guarded by God's provision. We must not be left as victims to our thoughts. We must not be left as those that just allow whatever headlines come in to be read and believed and followed. We must be protected. We must take up the whole armor of God, and that includes the helmet of salvation. A provided means for God's defense in our minds against the thoughts of the enemy that come our way. Now, what's amazing about the helmet that God has provided here, there's a lot of different ways that God has provided for our thinking. Um, earlier in Ephesians, Paul, in this passage, Paul talks about truth, for example. That is a great way. That, that could be its own helmet in and of itself. You know, there's different kinds of helmets, right? Uh, this is a helmet in and of itself. But interestingly enough, here in Ephesians 6, isn't it amazing that Paul wants us to think about salvation as a helmet? Really interesting. Paul chooses to use this unique and specific Greek word that it can also be translated deliverance or rescue. And this is the word that's used to describe what our helmet is against the attacks that come our way. The helmet of salvation. Now, now what does Paul intend to say here? Well, um, there's something specific that Paul is intending to say. And let me say what he's not saying. Let's start here. Paul is not saying, put on your helmet and save yourself. That's not what he's saying. The helmet of salvation. Like, if you do all the right things, you put on the helmet, you've saved yourself. That's not the helmet of salvation. Uh, Paul is actually using a phrase, notice this, that he pulls right from the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 59. In the context of Isaiah 59 uh, is, is God, who it says here puts on a helmet of salvation. God is looking on at the condition of the world, much like he would today. And he's seeing injustice. He's seeing his people being oppressed. He's seeing unrighteousness. And worst of all, 
He's looking and he can't find anyone that will get involved in the game. He can't find any of his people in the face of the unrighteousness to represent his kingdom. So he's looking on and he's like, where? there's no one to stand in the gap. In fact, when he looks on to his people, he's like, they all look the same. They look just like the world that they're called to be a light to. And so God looks on at this and he's like, okay, what am I going to do here? My people who are called to bring my salvation and to bring my hope to the world, they're, they're failing to follow me. And so it's an interesting passage where God says, okay, I, I'll basically, I'll, I'll get up and I'll take care of it myself. I will do for humanity what nobody's able to do for themselves. And the language used here is like God is like getting armed. It's so gnarly. It's so awesome. God is like getting his armor on to go to battle. It's like not a noise you want to hear. It's like God putting on his armor. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, what's that noise? That's God putting on his armor. We should run, okay? Like, that's the idea. God begins to put on righteousness as a breastplate. It speaks to his character. And then notice this, and a helmet of salvation on his head. Now, this is not God, by the way, like us, putting on a helmet to protect his thoughts from the devil. That's not what God's doing here. This is God going to bring victory and salvation for his people on their behalf. He's doing it for them. He's fighting for them. He's bringing the salvation. That's Isaiah 59. God wins the battles that not only we fail to win, but that we fail to fight. (laughs) Ultimately, it's the battle against the sin that has separated us from him. Yet God is our savior. Think about that for a second. And how true is that in the deepest parts of you this morning where you sit where you are and you say, God is my savior. God is my savior. He put on a helmet of salvation. When I was left with no armor at all, he fought and he won the battle for me. Anyone? That he's our savior. This is a central theme to God's character. It's also a central theme of Christmas. That God came to save his people from their sins. You shall call his name Jesus. I love the story in Luke chapter 2 when Simeon comes into the temple inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. God gave him a promise that he held on to his his whole life. His promise was that he would see the consolation of Israel. God spoke that to him and he held on to that. Sometimes you've got to hold on to those promises when it looks contrary. And the moment comes where the Spirit leads him into the temple, and there's baby Jesus there in the temple. And I love this. You know, again, if you're, if you're hoping to memorize more verses, i got a nice small one for you. Look at this, Luke 2.30. I love this. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You know, this is the testimony of every believer. Amen? Not just that we've heard about your salvation, but here's a Christian. God, I've seen your salvation. I've seen my sin, but, man, I've seen Jesus. And I've seen how you can save It's been said from the guttermost to the uttermost. You can rescue every and any last one of us because you're mighty to save. And there's Jesus representing God's salvation for the whole world. Let me remind you something. Here's the point of Christmas. God sent a Savior. We needed a Savior. We needed salvation. And God gave us salvation through his son, Jesus. Here's the point of Christmas. God sent a savior. I like the way D.A. Carson says it. He says, I'll read it from here. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent Cirque du Soleil. He would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived 
that our greatest need, let's underline this, was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. Not that Jesus can't represent any one of these things, but ultimately God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death as a result of that. And therefore, what did he do? He sent a savior. This is the point of Christmas. What we needed was salvation, good news, God sent a savior. It was John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, that said on his deathbed, two things on my last day I find to be true. I am a great sinner. But God is a greater Savior. I'm a great sinner, but he's a great Savior. I think of the words of Paul. Faithful and trustworthy are the words that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am chief sinner. CEO of the sinner organization, Paul says, right here. God sent his son Jesus to save us. Now, this is the salvation that Paul is talking about. This salvation that I pray is yours in Christ Jesus, and if it's not, it can be today. If you will not harden your heart, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But for those of us who are able to say, I've seen the salvation of the Lord, Paul says, good, that salvation is not just a past tense thing that you're to move on from, like a starting line to a race that you have to run on your own. That salvation, Paul says, is a helmet for your mind. That salvation that God has accomplished for you through his son Jesus is as relevant to your present as it was to your yesterday. And it's going to be relevant even to your future. His salvation is is a helmet. Now, the, the, the only reason why we are really able to know that this salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us through the cross and his resurrection, that this is what Paul is talking about as our helmet, is because Paul goes into a little bit more detail in 1 Thessalonians 5. You ever read some of those passages where you're like, is, is there a commentary that's written by Paul on this? You ever felt that way? Like, I know other people have wrote what they think Paul is saying, but there's some verses where Paul gives his own commentary. Because in other letters, he will expound on a little bit more. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul expounds on what it actually means, like, for you and I to put on the helmet of salvation. He gives a little bit more detail. He says, let us who are of the day, not the night, we're in the light, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. This is fun. In Ephesians, it's the breastplate of what? How do we gain righteousness in Jesus? Faith. What does righteousness look like living, being lived out in our lives? Looks like love, doesn't it? So Paul is even giving a commentary on righteousness. We're saved by faith. We're justified and made righteous by faith, not our works. And righteousness is its faith working through love. And then he says about the helmet. He, he gets back to this helmet. And as a helmet, make sure you put on, I love this, the hope of salvation. What a commentary. Thanks, Paul. In Ephesians 6, he says, put on the helmet of salvation. A little bit more detail here in 1 Thessalonians. What he means to say here is the salvation you have, it's, it's good, it's important, it's vital, it's eternal to make sure that you are saved. Yes. But as a follower of Jesus in a spiritual battle, you, you need to wear the hope of your salvation like a helmet. You need to wear the hope we talked about hope this morning. The hope of your salvation can't just be a fact of, of the past. The hope of your salvation, relevant today, needs to be put on like a helmet. The hope of your salvation as a helmet. I love Jordan's description of hope. 
By the way, I didn't intend to talk about hope the day that we're studying hope on Advent. So look at Jesus, all right? Leading us to reflect on this. Clearly, he wants us to be mindful of hope today. And um, I, I loved the, the description that Jordan was giving about cultural hope versus biblical hope. Cultural hope is, it's a coin flip, isn't it? It's like, uh, it's, it's, it's more of like a, a wishful thought, whereas Jordan said, biblical hope is a confident expectation. It's a reality. It, like, here's, here's a way to think about it. There's two kinds of hope. There's hope in your heart, and then there's hope in heaven. There's hope in your heart, and then there's hope in heaven. You can have hope in your heart for something, but actually lack true hope. That's a heavy statement, but that's true. You can be hopeful about things, but reality not correlate to what's in your heart. Does that make sense? Conversely, you can sadly have hope, yet be hopeless. Ever felt that? You can actually have the the reality of hope. I feel like I deal with this all the time with my kids, with their childhood fears of things. Like, I know that they have, (laughs) there's hope that whatever they're afraid of is not going to threaten them. It's a made-up character from a movie that some stupid kid at school told you about. Anyway, okay, he's not a stupid kid. Bless him in Jesus' name. Okay, now, (laughs) save him maybe, you know, but... um, I'm more aware of, listen, I'm more aware of their hope than they are. And how often is that true with us and God? What a prayer. Pray this. God, make me as aware of my hope as you are. God, put in my heart the same measure of the hope that I have in heaven. That's what we're talking about when we talk about hope talking about something that's true and reliable, something that can be tested and measured and evaluated if it's there or not. Now, if you were on your game and you subscribed to our Advent devotions three days ago, you would have got some great devos on hope. So I just quoted D.A. Carson. Now I'm going to quote another theologian. This is a theologian named Kyle Chamberlain, who's one of our elders here, one of our resident theologian elders, Kyle. I love Kyle said this, this in this morning's devotion on Lamentations 3 about hope. Kyle said this, I think we understand just how important, misunderstand, excuse me, or or underestimate rather, just how important hope is. When faced with the the hard and dark dark trials of life, our hope in the Lord is what can carry us through. Talking about Lamentations 3, he says, Jeremiah was devastated by the desolation wrought upon his people. Throughout Lamentations, he laments at the destroyed state of his nation. What have you had to grieve in your life? What sort of rubble and devastation have you had to face? Knowing full well it's the result of their sin. There's no lamenting like that which is caused by brokenness and sin. But look at this. But these verses mark a turning point. He has not lost all hope. Look at this. Not because of some flimsy wish that it's, quote, going to be okay. Can we just be done with the empty platitudes of culture? We have something so much better than the best is yet to come, maybe. We have hope because of the Lord's great mercy and faithfulness. He goes on to say, Kai was on to say that God has provided himself as the source of our hope. Here's the good news about God. He doesn't change. And if God doesn't change, guess what else doesn't change? Someone say it. Your hope. That's the answer there, okay? We doing okay? The answer was hope. I teed that up for you, okay? All right. I hope you pay attention for the rest of the sermon, okay? 
And I mean that as a flimsy, whimsical, you know, who knows. All right. You get the idea, right? Hope that's secure. Now, the, the verse that Kyle was referencing here in the devotion this morning, the theme verse of our, of our Advent day was Lamentations 3. Uh, as Kyle describes Jeremiah's own feet, like he's talking about what's in his heart. He says, my soul, my soul remembers and sinks within me. So this is where it usually begins. Despair begins usually not in the mind, but in the soul. Do you know what I mean? It's like you just, it's something you can't always articulate. It's, it's something that just weighs on you through the wear and tear of life. And you're, this is interesting. Sometimes, listen, listen, sometimes your soul remembers what your mind forgot. And you don't know why you're so snappy. You don't know why you're so afraid of community. You don't know what, you see, see what I'm saying? So when your soul's remembering what your mind has forgot, here's what you need to do with your mind. Recall your hope. So many times in the Psalms, you know what David does? He talks to his soul. He's like, hey, soul, how you doing this morning? Not so good. That's what I expected. And he'll say, have hope in God, soul. He'll start speaking the good news of what's true over his downcast soul. This I recall to mind. He's sitting there with a sunken down soul, and he says, this I recall, therefore I have hope. What did he recall? That through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed, because his compassions fail not. When I think about the Lord, when I get my mind on him, when I preach to myself, when I allow the counsel I want to give everyone else to first be counsel that I let the Spirit give me, my heart and my soul begin to catch up with reality. As a, as a child of God. And the hope that I have in heaven starts to mirror the hope I have in my heart. Th- this is the vision Paul has when he's writing to Christians that have every reason to lose heart and give up circumstantially. When he says, in the midst of your despair, put on your hope like a helmet. Think about God. Reflect on who he is. Reflect on how he saved you. Reflect on what He's done. Amen? How's your hope this morning? And what does it look like for you to begin to speak to your soul and tell yourself who your God is and what he's done? And most specifically, when we talk about who he is and what he's done, we're talking about the fact that he has saved you. That if you are in Christ, listen, there is no better place right now, despite how your life is, there's no better place than for you to be than in Jesus. Because if you're in Jesus, you have salvation. You've been saved. You've been saved. By grace, we have been saved through faith from a life of separation from God. Here's the good news. If you're in Jesus, you're being saved. Amen? That, I need that hope sometimes. Anybody else? It's like, Lord, I know you've saved me, but can you keep doing it? I need it. Everybody else needs it too for me to be saved more. Some have called this the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is you have been saved, past tense. Sanctification is you are being saved from the power of sin in your life to a life in God. I like how it says in Hebrews. Hebrews says, for, one by, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being made perfect. Is another way to say that. Isn't that cool? He's perfected forever. You're saved, but we're, we're still being saved, and I need that hope in my life. I have a lot of reasons to lose heart. When I look at my life, I see patterns of sin and behavior and brokenness and anger and all these things that I go, God, I thought you saved me because I am. I'm saving you. And we pursue him for that. 
We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We seek him. He's the one who does it, but we follow him in it. And then there's this hope. Can I remind you, Christian, that you have the hope over your life today that you will be saved. You've been saved, past tense. You're being saved, present tense. And in Jesus, you put on this helmet that reminds you that despite what you're going through, the future for those who are in God is bright. You're being saved. Um, in, in theology, the phrase for this is, it's a Latin phrase. If you want to show off at lunch today, you could use this Latin phrase. It's the word, it's the phrase, ordo salutis. And ordo salutis means this, the sequence or the order of how God saves us. And what's so good about God is he doesn't just save us in one way without then eventually saving us the other ways. They're all a part of the package of his salvation. It's the sequence of salvation. Romans 8 speaks to it the most clearly. In Romans 8, Paul has famously encouraged Christians that, um, that we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew. Notice this, he also pre- predestined. So there's the idea of God calling you. He saves you, but, but there's an ultimate purpose for this. He saves you to be conformed to the image of his son. That's my hope. That it was his idea to make me more like Jesus before it was my idea. So that's good news. Anybody else that's good news for you? Like it was God's idea to make you more like Jesus before it was yours. That's hope. He's going to make you more like his son. As you follow him, he will make you who he's called you to be. But notice the next step. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then Romans 8.30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined... These he also called, those he called, you see the sequence, the order, these he also justified, that's salvation, and those he's justified, these he also glorified. This is the future hope we have. This future hope, that as dark and grim as things seem, Paul will say earlier in this verse that I consider the sufferings of this world not worthy to be compared to what's coming. There's a verse in the Psalms I read last week. Psalm, in the Psalm, I've been in the Psalm 120s. Psalm 120s are banging. They're great. And I can't tell you what chapter, but maybe you know it. It's a psalm that says that those who sow in tears are going to reap in joy. Do you believe that for your future? Do you believe that even your darkest, most difficult, most depressing, most sad and sorrowful days in Jesus, that that sorrow is an investment in future joy? That's hope. There's hope that there's more to come. There's more to the story because you're not writing your story. He is. Amen? Thank you, God, that you're the author and perfecter of our faith. So that when I find myself in the spiritual battles of life, I don't have to muster my own salvation. I don't have to become you know, who I'm called to be in my own strength, but I can put on my head the crown, the helmet you've given me as your son and daughter. I put on your salvation, and it's my hope. And it's hope that can endure even the most difficult tests of life. Amen? Well, hey, here's how we're going to conclude our gathering time. I want to give special attention this morning to really zero our hearts and minds um, in on the hope of the gospel of Jesus. We're going to come to the communion table, um, which is a regular rhythm for us, obviously, but... um, I want to say a couple things as Kyle is going to come out and lead us into this time. I want to just give us one last scripture as we go into this, and it's the verse of the day. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. And I love this. And rest your hope fully 
upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul in 1 Peter is writing to Christians that have lost their hope. Mostly it's because they've nearly lost their lives. A lot of them have lost their homes, their possessions. They've lost family members because they were following Jesus. And in the midst of all that, Paul's like, okay, put your hope in something that won't fail. The language here is rest it. I love this. Paul pointed, or Kyle, Kyle, the Apostle Paul, same person. A couple days ago, Kyle mentioned the word there, fully. I love that. Rest your hope fully, not partially. I think of the, I can't remember his name, the missionary that was trying to translate this to a foreign tribe, and, and he was trying to think about how to teach them to trust in Jesus, and he looked over, and, and he saw one of the villagers laying in his hammock with his feet up. He saw another laying in his hammock with his foot on the ground, kind of rocking himself, partially supporting, and he goes, that's it. That's the visual. To put your hope in Jesus is to get off your feet and cast your full weight upon him. To rest fully in his hope. Not in his hope and your smarts. Not in his hope and your works. Not in his hope and anything but to fully rest in Jesus. So I wonder today, if you're here, what does that look like for you? What does it look like for you to let your foot come off the floor? Maybe you're here today brought by a friend and you know of Jesus. You even believe he existed. Maybe you even affirm the good news of the gospel. But I want to encourage you today that you can have more than knowledge today. You can have salvation in Jesus. How? By putting your hope in him. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Look to the cross and see what he did for your sin, for my sin. Out of his great love for you to purchase your life and rescue you into his family. To give you a future and a hope eternally. You were made for him. So today, maybe that's you. You're going to rest your hope in Jesus. You're going to stop thinking that you're going to be accepted by God anymore because of your works, whether good or bad. And you look to the works of Jesus. Or maybe today, as a follower of Jesus, you're here and life has given you many reasons to give up on hope in God. Not that he's not there, not that he doesn't love you, but that you're going to be okay. Rest your hope fully on his grace today.